Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Drastic measures. Deutsche Bank announcing 18,000 job cuts and abandons global equity trading. You're fired. President Erdogan removes his central bank governor. Turkish assets stumble and equal pay for equal play. The Women's Football World Cup champions calling for action. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Monday. Really great to be back in action. I can't describe it enough. Congratulations, of course, too, to Team USA. Some incredibly fancy footwork from the women's team this weekend. Let's hope the Fed Chair Jay Powell has been taking note, of course, because we don't want any own goals when he testifies in front of Congress later this week. I'm going to have lots of analogies like that this show right now. We're looking like a softer open for U.S. equities this morning as we kick off a new trading week. It follows some choppy trading, though, in the session on Friday after that strong jobs number. Clearly, it was good news for the U.S. economy here, but I think it's forcing a bit of a rethink for global investors about the justification here for rate cuts. It's simply going to come down to how Jay Powell frames the debate. Perhaps no surprise though, that Asian stocks fell in the session on Monday, too. But I do think there's a risk of overthinking this, guys. Powell, I think, will once again point out the longer-term challenges here that he's been reiterating for months and months. Look at the statement that we got in the session on Friday. The latest report to Congress shows low inflation, trade uncertainty and manufacturing weakness. None of these risks right now have gone away. And as we keep saying on first move here, and you know I like this, context is everything. It's just one jobs report. It's just one data point. And what we've got now is a market that's fully priced, if not slightly more, for a rate cut come the end of July. Not cutting. If the Fed doesn't decide to cut rates, that would create some kind of market volatility and something that Jay Powell is clearly trying to avoid here too. It's not going to stop questions, though, about political interference, though. But on the bright side, at least Jay Powell has a job, unlike the Turkish central bank governor, of course, that was ousted over the weekend. Something like that could never happen here. All right, let's get to the drivers. Enough being naughty. Deutsche Bank announcing an $8 billion plus overhaul, including 18,000 job cuts. Shares right now lower than more than 3%. Anna Stewart joins us now on this story. Anna, I think for anyone that's been watching this over the last decade and the struggles that this bank has faced, it comes as no surprise, but it's really tough reading, particularly as far as job losses are concerned. Talk me through it. Yeah, 18,000 is a really quite extraordinary number. It counts for nearly one in five 
Deutsche Bank jobs. And while the scale of this restructuring, which I'll get into, has actually taken some analysts by surprise, the area in focus here has an investment banking. It was always going to be the case, wasn't it? Um, we don't have a regional breakdown of those 18,000 jobs, but we understand that most of them are likely to be in the United States. The bank did tell us they were communicating uh, redundancies to the employees, starting off, of course, Asia early this morning. Plenty of media reports now about people leaving the London office with the boxes full of their belongings. All very sad. Now, in addition to shrinking the investment bank, they are creating a bad bank, of course, to wind down some $83 billion worth of assets. I mentioned that number because that is much bigger than many analysts had thought. Um, And they are also uh, surprised that they're closing the entire equity sales and trading division, even in Europe. That's another little nugget that took some people by surprise. But essentially, in many ways, this is making a return to what Deutsche Bank started off as, a corporate bank. And I think many people are quite happy to see this. JP Morgan put it as resizing to where it came from. Yeah, it's interesting, Anna, and you mentioned all the key points here. The other thing for me, though, when I look at it is you're not going to get a dividend as a shareholder for the next two years. A lot of the action that we're seeing is backloaded. The execution risk here after so many failed attempts to turn this around is a real problem as far as I'm concerned. If I were looking at this as a shareholder in particular. And the other thing, of course, here, one of the key challenges is going to be going forward What's the growth driver if we go back to the past and go back to being a corporate bank that's lending to small companies? As important as that is, what's the growth and the profitable driver here for the company going forward? Because this is what analysts are saying too. This is absolutely at the heart of what we're seeing today because there was a small relief rally, I think, due to the absence of a capital raise on the announcement. Of course, a lot of it was baked in already. We've been expecting an announcement for days and days. Uh, But if you look at the share price now, Julia, it was down last time I checked around 4%. It really came off that relief rally pretty quickly, over 4% now. And speaking to Alice, two main concerns here. Firstly, this is not a cheap plan. It's going to cost them $8 billion. That's a lot more than many people expected, definitely at the higher end. Uh, And also some analysts I spoke to, like Credit Suisse, just question the bank's projections for, as you say, revenue growth, particularly in this new core bank, given the scale of these cost cuts. And also the fact that this is a very grand radical restructuring, but it is the umpteenth. They want to see it in execution. Yeah, they do. And of course, Anna, to your point as well, hearts go out to those who are losing their jobs and lost them today in particular. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver in the Turkish lira, losing some ground versus the US dollar today. Turkish bonds also under a bit of pressure. President Erdogan sacking his central bank chief over the weekend, raising fresh concerns about the bank's independence. Matt Egan joins me now. Slight eyebrow raise on that one, Matt. I'm not sure this central bank had the answer for credibility left, quite frankly, after recent months. But talk us through this decision and the replacement and what that will mean for the central bank now. Julia, uh, Erdogan is really, you know, he's playing a dangerous game here because this could actually backfire in two different ways. One it is already undermining uh, the credibility and the independence of the central bank of Turkey, which is a big deal anywhere, but especially in emerging markets where you could have inflation flare up with little notice. The other problem is that, as you mentioned, it's causing the Turkish lira to lose ground, which could actually limit the ability of the central bank 
to do the rate cuts that Erdogan wants in the first place. So no official reason was given for the uh, decision to oust the central bank chief, whose term wasn't set to expire until the end of 2020. But, you know, it's important to uh, think about the backstory here. Uh, Turkey's president has called himself the, uh, the enemy of interest rates. He has this sort of fringe idea that high rates actually cause high inflation. And so he was very upset with the high interest rates in Turkey. Um, Win Thin of uh, Brown Brothers Harriman said in a research report over the weekend that, you know, the, the only crime of the central b- bank chief was the fact that he refused to cut interest rates and that this move shows who's really pulling the strings at the central bank. Now, it's no surprise to see that the lira initially plunged by about 4% against the U.S. dollar. It has come back, cut those losses in about half. Um, I think that is probably a reflection of the fact that Turkey's 10-year yield still is at about 16%. um, And so some investors are willing to gamble on it because you've got negative rates in Germany and in France, and the U.S. 10-year is just at 2%. So it's possible that, uh, you know, all of the central bank policies elsewhere is actually, they're actually masking the impact of uh, the firing over the weekend. Oh, you make such a great point. In a world of zero rates, yes, you face risks with this country, but oh boy, is there some degree of compensation relative to other countries right now. But I think to your point as well, investors got really furious with this central bank governor that he was too slow to raise rates to try and stabilize some of the currency volatility that we saw in the sell-off last summer. So he had his own president lambasting him for not cutting rates. Investors saying he was too slow to raise rates last year. It's a, a tough gig. But to your point, the politicization here of central banks, whether it's here in the United States and the the risks of Jay Powell and the pressure he faces from President Trump or what we're seeing in Turkey, a really fine line that you walk here with investors amid concerns of politicization and political interference here. It's a huge risk. That's right, Julia. You know, it is a tough job. They are walking a very fine line. And so the next big event in Turkey is when the central bank meets again on July 25th. Now, Rabobank said in a research report that they think that Turkey's new central bank chief could actually cut rates by several percentage points at this meeting to appease the president of Turkey. Now, they say that that would actually be a big mistake because of the currency weakness. Now, as you mentioned, all of this is occurring in the backdrop of President Trump repeatedly attacking uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve. So I don't know, Julia, maybe we're entering a new world where politicians have greater say over central bank policy, but it's hard to see how that's going to turn out well. Yeah, shipping Christine Lagarde. Unfortunately, she's already got the job with the ECB in Europe. (laughs) Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. Naughty. Okay, let's move on to our next driver. US women's football team, of course, making history this weekend with a fourth World Cup win. They beat the Netherlands in the final, a thrilling final 2-0. CNN Sports analyst Christine Brennan. Great to have you with us, Christine. Huge win for women's football. Huge win, I think, for global women's football and the challenge here but it has turned into a bit of of a political football here over um, equal pay so talk me through the success this weekend and also the challenges i think that follow here julia if the u.s team was trying to devise the best strategy possible to get to the bargaining table to fight for equal pay with the u.s soccer federation the national governing body for the sport this would have been exactly it this month-long march to victory 
with Donald Trump chiming in and Megan Rapino going after Donald Trump and some of her teammates doing that as well. And obviously, look who won that one in the end. Uh, it looks like uh, the women's soccer team certainly got the better of that in terms of uh, playing it, you know, backing it up with their great play. Uh, with the fact that the U.S. jersey, the women's jersey, is the best-selling soccer jersey in the United States ever, according to Nike. Uh, with the fact that the TV ratings, not just in the U.S., but around the world, were sky high. They figure a billion people watch. That's one out of eight people on the planet watching women's, women's football. Uh, it's all these things thrown together, plus all the headlines. I was at CNN earlier today here in the D.C. Bureau, and uh, every single big newspaper, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, front and center, the biggest picture, top of the page, A1, women's soccer. I think this is a pretty good, uh, they have a pretty good argument now when they take that to the bargaining table. You know, I, I couldn't agree more with you. It's great to see the publicity that we're seeing. But if we bring it back to the numbers here, I mean, the prize, and this is what they're arguing about for the 2018 Men's World Cup was $400 million. The female players get $30 million. So there is a huge disparity. But then if I look at the revenues generated by the Men's World Cup, $6 billion last year. We're talking $131 million for women's football. So. Yes, there's a pay gap. These are incredibly skilled athletes. But when you look at the kind of money that the, the sport itself is generating, there is a huge disparity. So how do you sort of square that circle or circle that square? <laughs> well, that's the international conversation. And you're right. I mean, right. FIFA has been dominated by men for generations. I think it's the most sexist organization I have ever seen in sports and covering sports for over 35 years. And uh, it's uh, it, it, they've kept the women down. They haven't supported the women. I mean, how is it that England for generations did not allow women to play soccer, uh, the nation that gave us soccer? Argentina, where have you been for all these years with the women's game? Spain now, of course, is there. Netherlands, obviously, cares. But they didn't for generations. And, and, and shame on FIFA for not throwing money and not demanding that every single go governing body for these in federations in, the, in these various countries didn't, didn't do 10, 15, 20, 25% of its budget for women's football 30, 20 years ago. That's that side of the argument. What we're talking about with this equal pay fight, Julia, is the United States. And there it is about as crystal clear as can be. Uh, the Wall Street Journal reported that over the last three years, the US women's team made more money, the game revenue, than the U.S. men's team. Obviously, the U.S. women's team is far superior to the men's team in terms of play, winning World Cups, winning Olympic gold medals. The U.S. men didn't even qualify for the last World Cup. So on all those measures within the United States, that's where the women have their argument, and that's where the battle will be joined. Yay, go the girls. Chrissy Brennan, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, Thank you, let Julia. me bring up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. Greece's new centre-right Prime Minister has been sworn in following a landslide win in snap elections this weekend. The party of Kyriakos Mitsotakis won 39.6% of the vote on a pledge to reignite the country's recovering economy. He said his priority now is to boost investment while slashing taxes and regulations. Donald Trump has lashed back at the British ambassador who described him as, quote, incompetent and insecure. The U.S. president said Kim Darrick has not served the U.S. well in his role as ambassador to Washington. His comments about President Trump were supposed to be confidential, but came to light when diplomatic cables were leaked. 
Iran has announced it has breached its uranium enrichment limits set in the landmark 2015 nuclear deal. Tehran had warned it would do so unless sanctions on its banking in all sectors were eased. It follows Donald Trump's decision last year to pull out of the nuclear deal. Nick Robinson joins us now live. Nick, and we are expecting U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to speak any moment. The question is, what will he say if indeed he says something about this? But just talk us through what we saw and heard from the Iranians at the weekend, because this is expressly what a few months ago Mike Pompeo said would not happen, that the Iranians would not do this as a result of the U.S. withdrawal. Well, and the Iranians have been very explicit in laying out an exact timeline and time frame for when they would breach the terms of the JCPOA, that international joint nuclear agreement that the United States pulled out of a year ago. It was 60 years, uh, 60 days ago yesterday that they said that they would announce on July 7th um, uh, their changes to how they would um, meet or not meet the terms of that agreement. And they had indicated back then that they they may enrich uranium above the, minute, above the maximum threshold that they're allowed to enrich it to. They announced today that they were now enriching it to 4.5%, which is above the 3.67% threshold they were allowed. And that was something that they, they had said that they were going to consider, that they would announce it on that date. They announced it on that date. And today they've laid down a further warning, if you will, saying in a further 60 days they will announce, uh, potentially announce another way that they're breaking the terms of that agreement. So at the moment, there are two ways that they're breaking the agreement. One, by having over the allowed amount of low-enriched uranium, 300 kilograms. They've said they've gone up on that level. They've gone now above the uh, percentage of low-enriched uranium. Actually, uh, Nick, uh, I'm that just going to get in there because Mike Pompeo has actually begun speaking. Let's listen into what he has to say. I make clear that the Trump administration has barked on a foreign policy that takes seriously the founders' ideas of individual liberty and constitutional government. Those principles have long played a prominent role in our country's foreign policy, and rightly so. Uh, but as that great admirer of American experiment, Alex de Tocqueville, noted, democracies have a tendency to lose sight of the big picture in the hurly-burly of everyday affairs. Every once in a while, we need to step back and reflect seriously on where we are, where we've been, and whether we're headed in the right direction. And that's why I'm pleased to announce today the formation of a Commission on Unalienable Rights. The commission is composed of human rights experts, philosophers, and activists. Republicans, Democrats, and independents of varied backgrounds and beliefs will provide me with advice on human rights grounded in our nation's founding principles and the principles of 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. An American commitment to uphold human rights played a major role in transforming the moral landscape of the international relations after World War II, something all Americans can rightly be proud of. Under the leadership of Eleanor Roosevelt, the 1948 Universal Declaration on Human Rights ended forever the notion that nations could abuse their citizens without attracting notice or repercussions. With the indispensable support of President Ronald Reagan, a human rights revolution toppled the totalitarian regimes of the former Soviet Union.
Okay, that was uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo there. If he mentions anything about Iran, we will bring that to you and update you firmly later on in the show. But for now, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. Coming up, though, June's strong jobs report here in the United States. Maybe a boost for the economy, but it's a challenge for markets right now. Do they get the cuts they want? We'll be talking about that. And Boeing can't seem to get a lift off. What Saudi's deal with the Airbus spells for the embattled airliner? When we return, stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. We're counting down to the market open as always. And we're with Christina Cooper, global market strategist at Invesco. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Happy Monday. Let's talk about the jobs report because we did see a bit of recalibration in the markets. Some people were talking about 50, half a percent cut from the Federal Reserve. That's getting a bit excitable, surely. That absolutely was off the table, I think, yeah. and really was never a possibility. No, it was never on the table. Yes, exactly. Okay, does it make it more difficult for Jay Powell even to justify at this stage cutting rates in light of what we're seeing? The consumer is such a huge part of the economy. The jobs market is really strong. Well, that's certainly what the market reaction suggests yes. that we saw on Friday. But I would argue that there are other reasons. So there are justifications for the Fed cutting rates in July. First of all, the Fed could easily just say they're moving the inflation target. Let's raise it, and then economic conditions don't yeah. have to change. Okay. But also, if you look at the jobs report, one area that's somewhat lackluster is actually wage growth. We're still at about 3.1%. We really should be 3.5% or higher at this stage in the economic cycle. So for that reason, you could make the case that maybe um, there's also uh, a need to cut rates. You know, it's interesting. I was making the point earlier that we're in a situation now when the market has fully priced something. Very difficult for any central bank governor to suddenly about turn and do something different. You create a huge amount of volatility just in right. doing it. Does and is the justification there or are we at risk of the question again about the politicization of, of, of the Fed and of J-PAL being backed into a situation either by the markets or by the White House here to cut rates when perhaps are not necessary? Oh, absolutely. I think anytime we see a central bank make an about face, do any kind of dramatic change, it creates economic policy uncertainty. And in particular, of course, we're seeing all this political pressure being heaped on central banks. And it's not just the Fed. Of course, we've seen it in Turkey right. uh, earlier today. Um, but also we've seen it in India. Uh, and perhaps that is just adding to the economic policy uncertainty out there and the lack of credibility that we could see for central banks. Is it smart then for the European Central Bank to say, hey, in this case, we'll have Christine Lagarde and we'll go for someone who perhaps understands the, the sort of tightrope that you have to walk between economic policy and, and, and politics here. Well, that's the great irony. By appointing a career politician, you might actually <laughs> be able to navigate the political scene much better as head of the ECB. What questions are investors asking you at this stage? What are the big concerns? Because we are now in the third quarter of the year and people obviously want to either hold on to the gains that they've made, the money that they've made so far this year, but also not risk getting chopped around in the back half of the year too. Well, we're getting really two key questions. The first, of course, is what's the Fed going to do? Is it really going to cut rates in the near term? Yeah. And secondly, of course, when is recession coming? Right. And your argument and call here on recession? Because you said, well, look, we're not looking at recession. We're not seeing recession. We certainly see a slowdown. But our expectation is the Fed is going to be dovish. Yeah. 
it may not give the market what it wants, but it will give the market what it needs. And in doing that, it should be supportive enough that we'll see a slowdown, but we won't go into recession in the next year. We're heading into earnings season too, and we've seen investors, analysts also pairing back their expectations, particularly for profit growth. Have we raised the likelihood actually, therefore, that we beat expectations and we perhaps give some tailwind to this market higher? That could certainly happen, especially since we have seen so many downward revisions. So that is certainly a distinct possibility. I think we'll skate by this earnings season as well without any kind of huge disappointments, ultimately. Big risk? The big risk going forward, of course, is, I think, um, the potential that the trade wars get worse. Uh, just because we have had some sort of um, an abatement, uh, a truce, so to speak, in the U.S.-China trade war, doesn't mean that the situation is going to get better. In fact, I would argue that it will ultimately get worse. But it's not just the U.S.-China trade war, right? We also have now um, the U.S. and the European yeah. Union looking like they're headed for something worse. Watch this space, Christine Hooper. Thank you so much for that. The market open next. Stay with us. first move that was the opening bell here from the New York Stock Exchange for the first trading session of the new week it's the first full week of course of Q3 trading here on Wall Street too and we are looking at the softer open to the markets Jay Powell front and center this week his testimony before Congress is going to be a key market event that coming Wednesday Thursday of course we've also got the minutes of the Federal Reserve's last policy meeting so gleaning some further details from that too we have got ongoing concerns about global growth as we were just discussing there with Christina Hope it's still justification here for that rate cut despite the strong jobs numbers on Friday. Morgan Stanley also turning cautious on stocks worldwide. It's cutting its global equity allocation to its lowest level in five years. That's interesting. It says the outlook for stocks over the next three months is not so good. All right, let me walk you through some of the individual movers in the session today. Apple in focus, the stock was downgraded by Rosenblatt Securities from neutral to sell. They say there's right now less reward, quote, for owning the stock. They believe Apple will face deterioration over the next 6 to 12 months. However, they did maintain their 12-month $150 price target. China, of course, and the challenges there, most likely front and center. Pepsi, a touch lower in the session. The beverage giant is set to report earnings tomorrow. It's one of the first U.S. companies, of course, to report this season. And investors are expecting pretty strong results, though some modest results compared to Q1, where it reported its fastest growth in multiple years. They're predicting an earnings will drop by 1% in fiscal 2019. Verizon, also in focus today. The stock was downgraded by Citi from buy to neutral. The firm citing a potential lower wireless pricing in the future, though again it maintained its $62 price target. All right, let's move on to one of today's also top stories. Billionaire Jeffrey Epstein is set to appear in a Manhattan federal court today. He's expected to be charged with sex trafficking involving minors. Epstein has escaped similar charges more than a decade ago 
thanks to a controversial plea deal. Shireen Prokopes joins us now. I mean, this is an explosive story, an explosive case, Shireen, for many reasons. I mean, the plea deal a decade ago that the victims involved and those that accused him didn't know about, but also just the links to business moguls right up to the White House. Talk us through what we're expecting today and, and why there's so much focus on this case. Uh, it's significant in, in many ways because when you think about there were so many victims here uh, who cooperated with investigators in 2008 and they had expected that there would be charges. They expected that they would have their day in court and then all of a sudden there was this plea deal uh, that they didn't know about that prosecutors there uh, in Florida in 2008, the federal prosecutor uh, there who is now the uh, who now works for the U.S. government, essentially, uh, for the Trump administration, uh, struck this secret deal uh, with uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, that essentially where he avoided a significant amount uh, of jail time. The victims never got an opportunity to talk to court. Now, today, what's happened is U.S. prosecutors here in New York and Southern District of New York have brought their own case uh, against Epstein from 2002 to 2005. They allege that he ran a sex trafficking enterprise, that he paid hundreds of dollars to underage girls, some as young as 14, and really deplorable, disgusting acts uh, that were going on inside his home. In some cases, uh, they say that he'd say, oh, come over for a massage. I'll pay you for a massage. And then things would quickly escalate, according uh, to prosecutors, uh, and then he would engage in sexual activity with these underage girls. He also used other girls to recruit uh, other potential victims, people who he would engage in sex with. So this is significant on many levels because it took many years to finally to bring this case. For victims, it will definitely be something of a moment. Finally, they have their day in court. And obviously, you have all of the political ramifications of who he is, his connections to uh, politicians, uh, to very wealthy people. Uh, and some think that that's what allowed him to get away with this for so many years. While the Southern District of New York uh, has finally said, you know, enough is enough. They brought their own case, and we expect to see him here in court later this afternoon. Uh, and, and we'll see. We'll see if a judge decides to, to allow him to go free or, or if he's going to remain in jail as he awaits a trial here. It's fascinating in the Me Too era that more hasn't been done in the, in the past 10 years. But now, perhaps, some of those are people that have challenged him and uh, accused him of crimes at least have their voices heard. We'll see how this goes. Shimon, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Plenty more to come on First Move. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Now, I happen to love maths, but mathematical formulas are not the route to happiness for most people. But one man claims to have equations that even the least mathematical among us will appreciate. Joining us is Scott Galloway. He's author of The Algebra of Happiness and professor at the NYU Stern School of Business. Great to have you Good with to see us. You, I love the book. Oh, thanks. Thanks for saying that. It's basically a sort of ode to being successful, how to be successful and not to listen to billionaires, not to yeah. listen to interesting people who say find your passion because yeah. actually that's not going to work. Yeah, I find that that's the worst advice you can get. At NYU, we have two types of people come speak to us, interesting people and billionaires, because <laughs> there's an assumption that if you've aggregated a billion dollars, you have insider wisdom, and the advice always ends with follow your passion. And the guy on stage has usually made his billions in iron ore smelting, and he's telling you to follow your passion. So 
What I tell young people is their job isn't to find their passion, but find something they're good at. And then invest the requisite perseverance, hard work, thousands of hours to become great at it. And the accoutrements of being great at it, success, economic security, relevance, opportunities will make you passionate about whatever it is. Jay-Z followed his passion and became a billionaire. Assume you are not Jay-Z. Find something, <laughs> you're, find something good. you're good at and you will become passionate about it. I mean, you were in Cannes yeah. for the, um, the sort of media festival there yeah. and you made some great comments and I, I pulled them out. The best tax lawyers, you were talking about tax yeah. lawyers and you, your quote was, um, the best tax lawyers in the world fly on private jets and find people better looking than them to marry, which makes them passionate about tax law. Well, there's few 12 year olds who say, I'm gonna be a tax lawyer. But there's people who have wonderful lives because they're great at tax law. So again, this notion of being great at something gives you unbelievable opportunities and you will become passionate about whatever it is. The passion kind of sectors, sports, food, nightlife, typically are over-invested. It's like any asset class. When there's too much investment, the return goes down. So if you want to manage a nightclub or go to work for Vogue, just ensure you get a ton of psychic income because on a risk-adjusted basis, your efforts are not going to be well rewarded. I guess their argument, though, is if you're passionate about something, you'll put the time in. Because yep. in the end, we only get good at something if we put yep. the time in. So in essence, one follows the other, yep. you hope. Well, you can't hate what you do, right? Yeah. But I think I, some people love numbers. Some people love medicine. Some people love, you know, whatever it might be, uh, teaching. And those might not be considered passions. But in fact, if you're good at it, the, the money will follow, the relevance and the passion will follow. So the key is to find something you're good at and say, find the economic security so you can pursue your passions on the weekend. The majority of people telling you to yeah. follow your passions are already rich. You know, my, fa my father always says, um, money doesn't buy you happiness, but you can be miserable in comfort. Well, there's a lot of research showing that unfortunately money Sorry, can yeah. buy you happiness. Uh, middle income people are happier than lower income, affluent are happier than middle income, but it tops out at a certain level. Once you get to a point that you can afford housing, absorb an economic shock, have health care, send your kids to good schools, which in most U.S. cities is about hundred dollars to $150,000 a year in household income. I would argue here in New York, it's closer to a million dollars a year. But once you get to that point, happiness tops out. And that is, once you're economically somewhat secure, getting more money won't make you any happier. Money is the ink in your pen. It can write different stories. It can make certain stories burn brighter. But it's not your story. So bust a move in a capitalist society to some level of economic security. But then figure out beyond that what makes you happy, what, what drives what drives reward and satisfaction in your life. It's a really interesting book. Um, so you've said, don't listen to interesting people and billionaires, basically, who say, follow your passion. What happens, because this also happened at Cannes, yeah. when uh, Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg yeah. says, um, we're going to launch a new cryptocurrency called Libra. What do you say? Well, that's, you know, what happens when Michael Jackson shows up to babysit your kids? Anything that goes wrong oh. is your fault. It, it's, they've done such a great job with our media and our information. We're going to give them control of our economy. We are rightfully concerned. This is an organization that has shown gross negligence around information and media. The takeover society, this has gotten very serious very yes. quickly. The takeover society has three legs of a stool. First, you get control of the media, then you get control of the money, and that leads to control of the military. Facebook has not done a great job taking control of the media, and let's be honest, they have control of most of the narrative in the media right now. Do we really want to give them control of our money and our economy? Buyer beware. Anything goes wrong here, it is our fault. But it's interesting, though. I mean, they do have 2.4 billion users. Yeah. If half of those, a quarter of those actually use it. You have a currency here that would be... A new default currency. Yeah, a new reserve currency. So they arguably have the power. And to your point, you know, we don't care enough about 
our privacy to delete the uh, delete our user profiles, even if we delete the app. So the, the potential here is huge. Yeah, but we're supposed to have a government that, that prevents us from a tragedy of the commons. And I'd like to think that the immunities are kicking in. We haven't had what I would say the referees on the field to make sure that Facebook doesn't get weaponized by foreign actors, respects our privacy. The government hasn't done, hasn't done a great job regulating Facebook around unintended consequences. Job. So I think this is an opportunity for us to press the reset button and really say, do we really want this organization potentially in charge of the default currency? Because the one thing capitalists fear more than the weaponization of our elections is recession. Right. And we could have the mother of all negative con unintended consequences if we let Facebook establish a new default currency. Do you think this is one area then where the regulators will step in and go, hang on a second? Rather than a situation, and we'll go into this about regulating big tech and the yep. question about the breakup of big tech and the yep. fact that the argument is regulators are way behind the curve here yep. and it will still take years for them to act. Is this somewhere, given the potency potentially of this, where they'll act first and perhaps learn more later? I hope so. I mean, we're already seeing it. We've had regulators across Europe express concern, everyone from the head of the, uh, the Senate panel on banking to uh, Representative uh, Maxine Waters out of Los Angeles has expect, expressed concern. So I think you're naturally seeing what I would call a well-deserved and well-earned gag reflex around this idea. So they're trying to do everything right, set up an independent body in Switzerland, make it a nonprofit. But there's one problem, Julia. It comes from Facebook. And people just are like, you know, burn me a million times, shame on me, build, burn me a million and one times, or excuse me, shame on you, burn me a million and one times, shame on me. So. I, I think the natural response here is the correct one, and that's one of mild horror. You know, it's interesting. Uh, every time I talk about Facebook and the challenges Facebook represents or, or faces themselves, I end up talking myself into buying the stock because I just don't think there's incentive anywhere to tackle it. Final question on yep. big tech. Yep. What are we missing here? Do you think ultimately, and you've talked about yep. Amazon, we've just had the 25th anniversary, we've talked about breakup, we've talked about the, the, the threat perhaps they represent to democracy. In the end, though, how does this play out? Well, I'd say you asked me what is the thing we've missed, and given where we are overlooking the NYSE, I would say the thing the market's got wrong is on the day that the DOJ and the FTC announced they were going to seriously look at these companies, their stocks on a combined aggregate basis like the market capitalization of Boeing. The market's got it wrong, Julia. These companies are going to skyrocket once the analysts get out their pencils and realize that broken up, these companies and these stocks are worth more. WhatsApp, Instagram, YouTube would all be amazing independent companies. If you look at all the big breakups of the past in our economy, post three, five years post the breakup, the companies are worth more disaggregated. So these stocks are going to skyrocket once breakup actually becomes a reality. But activist shareholders, investors are going to have to force that because the companies themselves ultimately are not going to get to that point, surely. I don't think it's an activist because most of these companies are two-class shareholder companies who have a controlling shareholder. I think yes. it's the government that's going to break them up. I think the DOJ is going to keep these lights green for a while if they do the right thing, and that is move in and oxygenate the economy by breaking these guys up. It's the good for the planet, good for the economy. And Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg end up far richer. richer. <laughs> yes. How to be successful and happy. Scott, fantastic to have you with us. Thanks a great book. Here. It's worth reading. Scott Galloway there. All right. More trouble for Boeing, the plane maker, losing a deal worth billions to Airbus as it struggles to get its embattled 737 MAX jet back in the air. All the details next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Moon. Boeing in focus. The plane maker has lost a deal with a Saudi Arabian airline to buy some of its 737 MAX jets. The carrier flyer deal says it will now fly an all Airbus fleet. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. Claire, this is fascinating because the order book is everything to Boeing on this MAX jet. What do we know about this story and how easy is it to transfer to, uh, to Airbus here for this company? Yeah, Julia, so Flyer Deal, uh, as you say, is the less than two-year-old low-cost carrier that's owned by the parent company of Saudi's national carrier, Saudia. Uh, now, we know back in December that they made a commitment with Boeing uh, to buy up to 50 737 MAX jets for a price of almost $6 billion. It now seems that commitment is well and truly awful, though they haven't said so in so many words. They are now going to buy, they say, up to 50 A320neo planes, which is the direct competitor to the 737 MAX. The critical line in the statement, this order will result in Flyer Deal operating an Air, all Airbus A320 fleet in the future. So they have not said it in so many words, but made it abundantly clear. But I will say, Julia, uh, this is more of a problem reputationally to Boeing than it is commercially. They still have about 4,500 of these planes uh, on order that haven't yet been delivered, which shows that most airlines are still uh, holding out for a fix to that software problem, are still waiting this out. Absolutely. And it's a waiting game if you want to transfer to Airbus. I was looking at the numbers here and we've made this comment all the way along. As of February of this year, the order backlog over Airbus for the comparative plane, the NEO, 5,962 for that single aisle jet. You're going to have to wait years and years and years if you want to transfer. And... We have to give context here too. AIG, of course, the owner of British Airways, signed a letter of intent to buy 200 MAX a couple of weeks ago. So some perhaps pulling away. Others are saying, look, we'll still buy these. I just hope they got a big discount. Uh, it, certainly, yeah, it certainly seems that they would have got a big discount, Julia. But yeah, the context is really important. That deal with IAG announced at the Paris Air Show uh, for 200 planes, which means that even though uh, Flyer Deal made a deal to buy 50 Airbus jets in replacement of the Boeing 737 MAX at Paris, Boeing still comes out of Paris at a net positive. The stock is still up on the year. Its order book is still 4,500. But as you say, switching to Airbus, not that easy. They have a, a backlog of, of about 5,800 uh, Airbus A320neo jets. Uh, the CEO in their recent shareholder meeting said that ramping up production of the A320neo is one of their top priorities. But either way, whether it's the Boeing 737 MAX that you're waiting for as they work with the regulators on a fix or the A320neo, this is definitely a waiting game for these airlines. Yeah, watch this space. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, speaking of British Airways, the British Airways owner AIG is facing a record $230 million fine. The proposed penalty follows a massive data breach back in 2017, which saw hackers steal the personal details of half a million customers. The fine would amount to 1.5% of BA's turnover that year. Haddis Gold joins us on this story. Hallis, the message there is actually it could have been worse under the new proposals, but far higher a fine than it would have been under the old ones. Julia, that's right. If this fine is actually imposed, because this is sort of a notification that they intend to impose this fine, if this fine by the ICO actually goes through of $230,000, it would represent the highest ever fine the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, has ever levied against any company. But as you're right, it's not actually the maximum penalty that they could have imposed. It's 1.5% of British Airways revenues for 2018, when actually, according to GDPR, that data protection law that rules over Europe, they could have imposed fines of up to 4% of those revenues. So not as bad as it could have been, but compared to what the old rules were, 
the maximum they could have fined them was 500,000 pounds, which the difference to what they've been fined, potentially being fined now, uh, it, it is quite a big difference. Now, you're right, this, this stemmed from a data breach from last year where about 500,000 customers' personal information, everything from logins to credit cards uh, to their names and addresses were leaked because of malware that was placed on British Airways' website that somehow redirected the traffic to a fraudulent website. And though British Airways made the breach public, the GDPR laws and the ICO said that, that, that they did not protect their users' data well enough, and that's why they imposed this fine. Now, British Airways CEO Alex Cruz said that they are surprised and disappointed and that they will plan to appeal the fine once it goes through, Julia. Yeah, you know, I still think it's peanuts when you're talking about 4% of global revenues. But I do think for some of these big tech companies, Facebook, we've just been talking about them, you've got to think very carefully about your privacy policies given past data breaches. This is a far more material fine than it's ever been. That's exactly right. And actually, what this lesson proves to companies is that these data breaches aren't just public relations nightmares, is that now they actually carry some significant financial liabilities as well. And we're seeing the British, uh, the British Airways parent company stock prices be slightly affected by this. It's down about 1.6%. But as we've seen, if they can go up to 4% of annual revenues, this is going to be more than just the pocket change in, in terms of those fines that we've seen in the past for people like Facebook, where it's 500,000 pounds, they could easily pay that off. This is going to get companies to start to sit up and pay more attention, is at least what the regulators hope. Yes, the question is, do users? Harris Gold, thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, I want to give you a quick update now on Jeffrey Epstein. Of course, the billionaire Jeffrey Epstein has just been indicted in New York with having operated a sex trafficking ring involving minors. According to the indictment, Epstein ran a trafficking enterprise between 2002 and 2005 in which he paid hundreds of dollars in cash to girls as young as 14 years old for sex. He's been charged with one count of sex trafficking of minors and one count of conspiracy to engage in sex trafficking of minors. We will continue to follow that story, 10 years it seems, in the making. All right. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing for the markets here, the U.S. majors, as we get to this session shaping up to be, well, we're seeing losses right now, six-tenths of one percent. The Nasdaq under more broad pressure, nine-tenths of one percent. Jay Powell is going to be the key this week. What does he say to justify what the market has priced, of course, that rate cut later this month? That's it from me. I'm Julia Chasley. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Happy Monday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.